then we'll just do the sermon. Oh, you know what? Somebody didn't do my notes back, so can I preach this sermon to you in reverse? We can see how that goes. Um, You know, you notice some of the changes up here on the platform. Uh, uh, That was done this week. Uh, There are a few more changes yet to come with painting. Um, Trying to think what else. That's probably the biggest thing. Uh, Painting in the lobby, painting in here, um, painting in the offices and so forth. We uh, said a few weeks back that by the grace of God, we were given a a very, very gracious gift that we've been able to do a lot of things with. And just one of the things that we're doing with that gift is trying to give a facelift to a facility that's 20 uh, or 18, I think, actually 18 years old. And uh, we're very, very grateful to be able to do that and to not have to divert dollars that you know, that you guys give, um, we don't have to say, hey, we'd like to buy carpet, because how many people here are excited about buying carpet? That's what I thought. Uh, nobody. And uh, so anyway, <laughs> yeah, yeah. anyway, we're, we're very thankful, uh, and uh, we should be done with this, uh, all this, this facelift stuff probably by the end of May or something like that. But uh, uh, Well, so at this time in our worship, there's a time when we ask God to to guide us and speak to us through his word, uh, just as he's been speaking to us through the things that we have been praying and, and saying and singing. So pray with me if you would. Lord God, teach us now as we reflect together on your word. For we ask it in the name of our King, King Jesus. Amen. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Psalm 73. That's what we're going to be studying this morning. Um, uh, this, uh, this psalm shows us in a very, very vivid way uh, and practical way how worship, this thing that we've been talking about for weeks now, how worship changes us. Uh, and the psalmist begins this psalm by saying, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, he says, so a problem's coming, you can see that. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. And all the way through this psalms, uh, through this psalm, the psalmist is painting pictures for us. And here's the plight that the psalmist finds himself in. He says, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So this psalmist has a serious envy problem. I wonder how many of us uh, could say the same thing. We have a, a bit of an envy problem. Or I'll put it differently. How many of us could say, no, I don't, I don't have that problem. Uh, I haven't envied in a long, long time, you know, that, where the thought of being jealous of another person enters my mind. I don't wrestle with that. It never occurred to me to, to say that um, uh, when I look at someone else and what they have, you know, that person's job, oh, that should be mine, or that person's marriage, gosh, I wish I had a marriage like that, or gosh, that person's personality, I wish I was more like that person's personality, or I wish I had that person's waistline or hairline or bottom line, whatever line it is. Uh, or, or how long has it been since, you know, maybe you've got a rival at work, somebody you kind of compete with, and uh, that rival at work gets a whopping promotion, they lose 25 pounds, they just look fantastic, and they got married to an ex-supermodel turned neurosurgeon, and your only response was, oh, you know, bless you, that's so great, I'm so happy for you, I'm thrilled for you. 
How many could say in the past seven days you've had no thoughts of selfish ambition or arrogance, no attempts to manipulate or control others, uh, no self-serving statements or actions, no impression management going on. Your week has been just a week of humility and self-denial. Would you please stand up? Interesting, I'm the only one standing. (laughs) And as you well know, I shouldn't be, right? I shouldn't be. Life in our world usually doesn't produce those kinds of things in us as we process life with all the brokenness and the sin that's in us. In fact, um, I I hope it's safe to say that that, uh, some of us who came into this room and we've been listening to and participating in the worship thus far, and you might have come in carrying a burden of some sort, uh, maybe a problem that you have really wrestled and found difficulty with solving, And that problem, that difficulty has kind of caused a knot in your stomach uh, that maybe you've been carrying around for some days. But then when you enter into public worship with others who are gathered like this and you start singing and praying and you sing things like the Lord our God is ever faithful, never changing through the ages, from this darkness you will lead us and forever we will say you're the Lord our God. And then you sing promise maker, promise keeper. You see how rich these lyrics are? They're coming out of the Old Testament experience of God's people with God. Promise maker, promise keeper. You finish what you begin. Our provision through the desert. You see it through till the end. You see it through till the end. And when you sing those words and the the music and the melody also moves you, you, you find that something starts to happen Inside, something spiritual, something supernatural, a kind of hope, a kind of trust wells up inside you, and you start to think, you know, this really is the truth about me, about my circumstances, about my God. My God is a promise maker, my God is a promise keeper. He is my provision, even through this desert that I may be going through right now. He'll see me through to the end. That is the truth, and I can recognize it in worship. And the thought gets born inside you, even as you process these things, that the God who delivered Daniel from the lion's den, and the God who gave David what he needed to fight and defeat a giant, and the God who saved Elijah from a queen like Isabel, that same God is alive and well, and he can do the same for you. He can deliver you. I'll just bet that maybe in the last 30 or so minutes, uh, somebody came into this room, and a part of your heart maybe was cold. Or hardened towards the Lord. Maybe there's some area of sin in your life that's been blocking the relationship that you have with the Heavenly Father. But then again, same thing. Something we sang. Something that we prayed. Some confession that we read. Some worship that we were giving. (laughs) And God comes to you in a particular moment and he ambushes you. Because our God does that a lot to us, particularly when we gather with others in worship. God met you here, and you're not quite the same as you were maybe 30 minutes ago or an hour ago. You find yourself encouraged, or you find yourself convicted, but also reassured that there's a solution to your sin problem. Or you find yourself opening up more to God, more open than you were when you came in. And you might find yourself thinking, Probably not out loud, but maybe to yourself. What if? What if I hadn't come? 
And we've talked about this all through this series, that we worship a God not because we want to get something out of it, but we worship him solely because God is worthy to be worshipped, because he is immeasurably and incalculably, that's hard to say, incalculably and unutterably, and it almost is unutterably, good. That's the God we worship. And we don't worship to get something out of it, but, but because God is so good, when we worship, something happens. And we look at our hearts and we look at the hearts of others as we see them worshiping and we see God at work and then our hearts get full of joy. And we become grateful. We didn't necessarily come in with grateful hearts, but their hearts become grateful. And we get filled up with confidence, not in ourselves, but in this God that we serve because we're reminded that with God all Things are possible. The Lord our God is ever faithful, never changing through the ages. From this darkness, he will lead us. That's his promise. And so we genuinely want to share our faith, too, with others who don't know this great God. And we're filled with hope for that day when all wounded souls, ours included, are going to be made whole once and for all. And, you know, when we worship together, when we pray together, when we confess Together, when we study together, that's the kind of thing that happens and is supposed to happen in worship when we practice the discipline of worship. But when I don't worship, well, something else happens. When I refuse to worship, when I neglect worship, when worship is not a priority for me in my weekly rhythm, well, other things happen in my mind. I I become anxious about tomorrow. I envy people who uh, have what I don't have and I think I should. I develop a sense of entitlement that says, you know what, that ought to be mine. What he has, what she has, that ought to be mine. And that, frankly, friends, chokes off gratitude in us. And that causes us to become negative, maybe judgmental towards other people, towards what God might be doing in their lives. And I get discouraged. I get easily defeated by setbacks. And that, friends, is a description of a non-worshipping mind and heart so question what kind of mind do you want to have i mean what kind of heart do you want to have what kind of life do you want to live now you know there is no clearer example of the of the kind of transformative change that needs to happen in a human heart than what we've got right here in Psalm 73. Uh, no clearer example of a, that of the non-worshiping mind versus the worshiping mind right here in Psalm 73. The psalmist says, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We see that his life we see exactly where his life and his heart are in this. In verse 4 he says, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. He's talking about the wicked here or the, those who don't know God. They don't love God. Their, their life is not about acknowledging God and lifting him up and giving him glory. And he says they have no pain. Their bodies are nourished. Their bodies are strong. They're beautiful people, he says. They're wicked, but they're the kind of people who end up on the covers of magazines. People celebrate them. Verse 5, he says, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of us, the rest of mankind. 
They're not plagued like other people. They don't seem to have financial struggles, financial challenges. Uh, they sin boldly, but their, their careers and their lives just seem to move on and flourish. They vacation whenever and wherever they want. They lead the good life. And the psalmist, frankly, cannot understand this. He, this is an enigma to him. Why is this happening? And in verse 6, he says, therefore, you know, because their lives are going so well, he says, pride is their necklace. In other words, pride for them is not something they're ashamed of. It's something they flaunt. It's something they, they wear like jewelry. In verse 7, he says, their eyes swell out through fatness. The idea there, the general idea uh, is that uh, they don't know hunger. They don't know privation of, of any sort. I mean, they're, they're so full, their eyes are bulging, right? And in verses 8 and 9, he says, they scoff. And they speak with malice, ill intent. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. These people are arrogant. They, they think that they've got life all figured out. Everything's all nailed down. They're opposed to God, but life is turning out exactly the way they want it to turn out. And not just that, verse 10, it says, Therefore, precisely because everything in their life is turning out so well, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. Another picture. See, instead of them being the, maybe the object of pity, or instead of the community looking at them and going, you know, where you're going is a bad place, you're not living in a way that honors God, and instead of that, instead of that kind of a reprimand, uh, these people are actually being praised by the community. They're the ones others look to. Everybody's saying, man, they know how to live. Everybody's saying, boy, they've got the secret all figured out. They're the ones we need to learn from. They're the ones whose books we need to read And so people seek them out and they drink up as if drinking water. They drink up what they say. And then we're still in verse 11. They openly mock God. They openly celebrate that they don't really need anything from God. God has nothing to give them. They say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? In other words, uh, who says God's so smart? Who says I'm accountable to God? Who says I need to bow down before this God, the God of Israel? Who who says I need to follow what he says in his word? Who says he's the possessor of wisdom? And the psalmist says these people are wicked. They openly mock God. But here's the real nub of the problem. God does nothing. The psalmist doesn't see God doing anything. He says, it's bad enough they're doing so well, but what makes it exponentially worse is I'm trying so hard to be righteous and it's not paying off. Uh, I'm no better off uh, by being righteous than I would be if I was living the way they were living. Look at verse 12. It says, this is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. The psalmist is being just brutally honest here with what he thinks he's observing. And he says, Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands uh, in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. Now, we don't know what the psalmist uh, has been plagued with. We don't know why he thinks he's being punished or rebuked. But the psalmist looks at the lives of these other people. He looks at their defiance against God. He looks at the fact that God seems to do nothing. And, he, and then he looks at himself and he says, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I, 
I go to church. I read my Bible. I tithe my resources. I avoid gross sin. Why? What is the payoff? What good is any of this doing me? I'm not getting ahead. I'm not moving from my current house into a bigger house. I'm not taking this old car that I drive and getting to drive a new car. Uh, I'm not wearing nicer clothes. I'm not making more friends and influencing more people. And he lives in this kind of a soupy bitterness of comparison. Have you ever lived there? In a soupy bitterness of comparison. Comparing yourself with other people. It is a toxic place to be. And uh, the psalmist actually gets to a place where he realizes he's in a toxic place, very toxic place. He realizes that thoughts like this, they're leading him down a path that are, frankly, if he stays there, they're going to destroy his soul. And he's right. He's right. They will. Verse 15, he said, if I had said, I will speak thus. In other words, if I continue on this path, thinking and saying what I'm saying. He said, I would have betrayed your children, he says to God. And so he brings the community into this. If I had stayed on this path, uh, I would be betraying your children, God. This community that I'm a part of. And frankly, right now, at this particular point in the psalm, the only thing that's helping to keep him on the path is the idea that he doesn't want to betray community. You see. Uh, If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. Now, my envy could make me disloyal to everything I value. That's starting to dawn on him just how serious his circumstance is. Verse 16, he said, "When when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. The more I think about it, the more hopeless I feel. The more I think about it, the more none of this makes any sense to me whatsoever. And he's hanging on to his spiritual integrity by a slender thread, just as, you know, some of us have done before. I mean, on the one hand, if he gives in to his cynicism, he will betray everything that has meaning in his life, everything that has given him his his identity, which is his community and his God. On the other hand, the unfairness of all this, his unhappiness have driven him right, right literally up to the brink of of a precipice. That's his state of mind. I mean, he's confused, he's bitter, he's unhappy, he's double-minded, going back and forth and back and forth. He's tempted in all this. He's discouraged, he's envious, he's far from God. He's tossed around and he's exhausted from it. And he says, man, I, I cannot make sense of any of this. And then, and this is so beautiful... Uh, This is really the turning point of the psalm. It's the hinge, if you will, that his soul swings, the point at which his soul swings from from thoughts that are going to kill him to thoughts that are going to save him. Verse 17. He's just walking down the road towards death and despair and darkness. And he says, "Till until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood. Then I comprehended their final destiny. Until I practiced again the discipline of assembling together with God's people, even though there probably wasn't a bone in his body that wanted to. You ever felt that? It wasn't until I deliberately entered into the presence of God and remembered with others God's goodness and devoted myself to worship, even though maybe I didn't feel like it. It wasn't until then that my thoughts and my feelings we're turned around. He does a 180, you see. 
It was in worship, he says, that I found what I desperately, desperately needed. And I would argue, friends, that in worship, this, uh, this psalmist was given three things. And I want to kind of, as we march through the rest of the psalm, we'll talk about these three things. The first one is he was given perspective. And I have said this already, uh, but in worship, one of the key things that happens to us is we gain perspective. Look at verses 17 to 20. He says, uh, when, uh, until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. Oh, he remembers that you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept, swept away by terrors. Why? Because they have no grounding, they have no footing, they have no foundation. He says, as a dream when one awakens, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies, as phantoms, as, as images that just disappear in the mist. Again, they have no foundation. They have nothing to hold on to when life begins to shake them, and it will. The psalmist says, when I went into worship, when I entered the sanctuary with God's people, I remembered some things there, truths that I had frankly forgotten, truths that I had neglected to embrace and to hold on to. I remembered that there's more to reality than just the stuff that I can see or the stuff that I can hear. In worship, I remembered that today's asset list and financial portfolios, those things are not the final word. They are not the way that the score is going to be kept at the end of the day. They are not. And yet everything in our world says that they are, but they are not. I remembered, he says, in your presence, Lord, that every human being is just one heartbeat away. Just one. From giving an account of their life to a transcendent God who is breathtakingly powerful and utterly just. And part of what I need to do is remember that, he's saying. I need to remember that. That truth should shape uh, my prayers and it should uh, shape how I use my resources and my time. and, And it should shape my availability to others to share with them what I know to be true about Jesus, about God about life. Why? Because every one of us, myself included, every one of us are just one heartbeat away, whether they're family, friends, neighbors, coworkers, people that I love, people that I care about, all of us are on a slippery place. People that sometimes I even envy, they are one heartbeat away from standing in front of this holy God. When the psalmist worships, he says, you know, it's like my eyes were opened. It's like the lights came on. I saw the people that I envied, they are most to be prayed for and reached out to. In worship, he says, I was given perspective. I was able to see things as they really are. But I want you to see something else. In worship, the psalmist was also able to begin the process of diagnosing his own heart condition. And this is a lot about uh, what worship does in us. That's the second thing that happens in worship. I am able to diagnose the condition of my heart. Look at verse 21 and 22. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish. I was ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. I was self-destructive. I, I wasn't thinking. I wasn't at all understanding the landscape or seeing it for what it really is. I I have a friend who had a dog, and to keep the dog in the yard, he had an electric fence, an electronic fence. Some of you have these. 
And I think how these work is they bury a cable in the ground, you know, at the perimeter. And then the dog wears a collar. And when the dog gets right up close to that perimeter, uh, it starts shocking the dog to back that dog away from the barrier. And he was telling me about his dog. I guess his dog had a very, very strong impulse control disorder. And, uh, and this dog always wanted to leave the yard, always w- was doing this, particularly when a girl dog uh, would come along and he wasn't very choosy. Any girl dog was fine. And, and uh, he would sometimes watch his dog and the, the dog would see a, another dog out there that they wanted to go chase. And the dog would kind of come up close to the barrier and then stop as if to think and almost kind of cock his head. And, you know, I'd really like to pursue this relationship like this is what the dog's thinking. But I know there's going to be pain if I do. But is the pain going to be worth it? And then uh, he said his dog, sure enough, most of the time would say it's going to be worth it. And so the dog would back up and get a running start and just plow through the barrier. Now, because of this dog's prior history... You know, they had the juice turned up pretty high. And this dog would pass through the barrier and then drop. <laughs> it would knock him out. And, uh, but the dog had kind of figured out that if he got enough momentum, he'd get beyond the barrier. And yeah, he'd be knocked out for a bit. But then he would become conscious again, right? Come out of the coma. And uh, then off he would go. Chasing this, this other dog. Problem was, these relationships never lasted. He'd always come back home alone, right? And he would do this over and over and over and over. It's like he he never learned. It's not worth it, dog. You know? It's just not worth it. Boy, thank goodness only dogs, right? Thank goodness only dogs do this. Well, the psalmist is saying he did this. He said, I was like that. I was like a beast. I I was like an animal. I let my mind and my heart forget who God really is and forget what God is really like and forget the wisdom and the joy and the goodness of his word as I live it out. I think we all know something called the 10th commandment, right? Has something to say about envy and coveting. And he's saying, you know, I thought I was living kind of a, uh, a righteous life, but I come to find out I'm sort of living a nonstop, you know, breaking of the Tenth Commandment. I thought I was righteous, but I thought I deserved something better from God than everybody else. But the truth is, here was this fundamental command, one of the Big Ten, and he was actually breaking it over and over and over and over every single day. He was living like a beast is the point. Just sinning and sinning and sinning, even though he thought he was going to, um, thought he should be rewarded by God. And he was, he was committing this sin over and over and over, even though the, the effect that was having in his heart and in his soul was painful. It was destructive. And it caused all kinds of damage to him spiritually, but he was doing it anyway. Do you think and act that way sometimes too? I mean, have you? We do. The psalmist says, I knew better, but I'd give in to it every time, time after time after time. And when I did, I was just like a beast until one day, thank God, I entered into the sanctuary, he says. That was the turning point. In worship, I came to my senses, he says. I remembered I don't need to live this way. Look at verses 23 and 24. It says, in worship, he remembers this very wonderful truth. And this is so good. He says, 
Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. This is a picture of God holding his right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. See, this truth so impacts him that it starts to change his heart. And that's the third thing that worship can do. Worship gives us perspective. Worship helps us to diagnose the condition of our heart. And then ultimately, in worship, we are led to that place where transformation happens. The psalmist here is reminded about a very fundamental truth. His God is walking through life with him no matter what comes his way. In fact, God is holding, holding his hand like a father would hold the hand of a child at a busy intersection. His God is holding his hand. And he says, you guide me. You guide me with your counsel. You keep me from making stupid mistakes if I'll listen. And afterward, you'll take me into glory, he says. Where my wounded sinful soul will be made whole and perfect once and for all. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? Boy, the tone starts to change here. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you now, he says. The idea here isn't that he doesn't want food, clothing, and shelter or things like that. It's that he doesn't want anything that God doesn't want for him. That's the idea. I mean, his attitude has shifted tremendously here. Now it's, here's all this stuff I want and I don't have it, but somebody else does. Now it's, God, I really don't want anything if it's not what you want for me. Talk about maturity. Talk about perspective. Talk about change. In verse 26, he says, my flesh and my heart may fail. It may happen. I may not ever be one of that beautiful, rich people but you know what he says god is my strength he's the strength of my heart and my portion forever those who are far from you will perish you destroy all who are unfaithful to you but now he sees things more clearly than he was seeing him and he says but as for me it is good to be near god i have made the sovereign lord my refuge He's where I'm going. He's what I will grasp for and hold on to. I will tell of your deeds, he says. And you can just hear kind of the backdrop of these these comments. It's, It's as if he's saying, what if? What if I hadn't gone into the sanctuary at all? What if I'd avoided worship? What if I would have neglected the assembling of myself together with other believers? I would have gone on in that bitterness and in that envy. I would have made stupid decisions. I would have lived with an ungrateful heart. I would have been set up for all kinds of sinful behavior. I would have lived life blind to the reality of God. I would have thrown my life away. What if? I mean, thank God for the sanctuary. Thank God for the discipline of worship. That's what he's saying, friends. And you know what? I think maybe many, if not most of us, would affirm this. We'd say, that's happened to me before, too. We'd say, you know what? There was a time when I was headed down kind of a Psalm 73 path, you know. I was angry. I was frustrated. I was callous toward God. I didn't like what I saw happening in other people's lives because I didn't like what I saw happening in my life. And the question that occurred to me, why? Why bother even following God? But then I entered into the sanctuary. And I practiced the discipline of assembling myself together with others. And I came to worship and I remembered, thank God for this community that worships And helps me to remember, you see. That's a big part of what this is about. We gather 
And together we gain perspective. Together we remember the good truths about our God and our circumstances and about ourselves. We gain perspective. And in that process, uh, this, this thing of diagnosing our own heart condition happens. God can speak to us. Sometimes publicly the way he can't privately. Just because of what we're hearing, what we're singing, what we're thinking about. And uh, then too, God begins to change our heart. That's what he did for the psalmist. You know, we need to be clear. Um, Worship is about God. It's not about me. It's not about getting my needs met. It's not about my preferred style. It's not about my personal taste. It's not about me being entertained. It's about what I bring to God. That's what worship is about. It's about my surrendering to him. It's about me honoring him because of who he is. But our God, get this, our God is so, so, so good that in the process of our honoring him, being in his presence, remembering who he is, remembering what he's done for us, in that process, we grow in grace and knowledge. We get changed. We are transformed. We gain perspective. We diagnose our heart and we see our heart change. Worship is such an incredible gift to us, friends. And my plea with you as a a pastor is that since you're not paid to be here, you really need to make it a priority so that you don't miss out on the opportunity to gain perspective Miss out on the opportunity to diagnose your heart and miss out on the opportunity to see heart change. That needs to be our prayer when we come into this place. God, we are here to honor you. We are here to give you glory. And God, if you you would, if, if you would speak back to us in ways that would bring us more in line with doing what you want us to do and being who you want us to be, because that is the rich path, the path of righteousness, the path that leads to joy, to satisfaction, to meaning, to purpose in life. That's so much of what we get out of worship, even though that's not the goal of worship. Anybody agree? That's good. Um, it's, It's interesting to me that in the sacrament that we get to partake of this morning, It reinforces everything we've just talked about. I mean, here is a meal that that Jesus had with his disciples. And uh, in the meal, he said some things and did some things that would publicly display, publicly remind us of what he's done. Publicly teach us that we need to eat of him. We need to partake of him. Um, and when we do, we actually grow. We actually are, are growing in, in grace and in knowledge. We actually are becoming people who are transformed. It's really the, the dynamic that happens in worship. Jesus in the upper room took the bread with his disciples, and he, he broke it, and he said, This bread is my body broken for you. And he told them to do this in remembrance of him. There's that remembering thing. That word comes up all the time when you talk about worship. It's so much about remembering who he is, who we are, what he's done. He took the wine and he said, This wine is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the remission of sins. 
And then he gave it to them and he said, drink it. And so when we gather in a room like this, we're remembering his body broken for us. And we're remembering his blood that was shed for us. Because it was in his body and it was in his blood that our sins were forgiven. And the door of opportunity to come to him was swung wide open. Wide open. And so as always, we remind ourselves that Jesus is the host at this table. Jesus is the one who welcomes us. And and really he says, come to me and eat. Come to me and drink. Come to me in faith. And that's the really vital thing here. Come in faith to this table. And feast on the goodness and the grace and the work of Jesus. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, then this really is not a meal for you. And I don't say that harshly. I would encourage you to put your faith in Jesus. But uh, if you're in a place where you're in process on that, not sure where you stand in terms of your personal faith in Jesus, then sit this one out. Think about it. Pray. Ask God to reveal himself to you. He will do that. But uh, if you know Jesus, I encourage you to come feed on him. Um, We have uh, wine and we have juice. The goblets with the little bracelet on the stem are wine. And uh, we'll have four stations up front. You'll get up out of your seats. You'll move to the left. You'll come forward. You'll tear off a piece of bread. And you'll dip it in either the wine or the juice. And you will feed on Jesus. I'm going to pray and set these elements apart for their special purpose. Uh, Just a reminder, we have some gluten-free wafers up here for those of you that need it. And you're welcome to come right to the table and get those. Um, But as I pray, I'm going to ask the the folks who will be serving us this morning to come forward um, as well as I pray. So pray with me. Father, this is a special time that Jesus gave us. A special time of remembrance, a special time of worship. Help us to come to this table full of faith. Where our faith is strong, Lord, strengthen. Or where, where our faith is strong, Lord, receive it as unto you, as, as in honor of you. Where our faith is weak, Father, strengthen it. Let us bring ourselves to you in this meal, Jesus, and and be changed, be transformed, be surrendered to you. We thank you for the bread representing your body. And we thank you for the wine, the juice, representing your blood. And we thank you, Jesus, that you host us and that you love us. And you say, come and eat. And as we do, strengthen our spirits, our souls. And all of this we pray in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Let's all stand together. Father, we thank you for this time of worship that we've had. Dismiss us with your blessing. May God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy and whole. Put you together, spirit, soul, and body, and keep you fit for the coming of our Master and our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who called you is completely dependable and faithful.
If he said it, he will do it. God bless. Amen.